0: Stay hungry, stay foolish.
1: Today's show focuses on the business story of Walt Disney and the company he built. Combining a unique blend of entrepreneurship, creativity, innovation, and a relentless drive to bring out the best in his teams, Walt Disney created one of the most successful ventures in business history. Outlining the specific processes of the company, our guest today provides you with the tools you need to embrace your own entrepreneurial leadership style, to lead effectively, to be more innovative, and to build a successful organization. Through the lens of Disney, we will learn the fundamentals of entrepreneurship, innovation, and leadership. Beginning with a general introduction to the concepts relevant to the entrepreneurial organization today, the book examines how Disney built his empire and how the company remains an industry leader. The book also provides the opportunity to take the entrepreneurial leadership instrument, which measures one's style in leading entrepreneurial ventures. We welcome author of Entrepreneurship, the Disney Way, Mike Goldsby. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be on, Adrian. Let's start with why Disney, Mike. Of all the companies you could use and all the books written about Disney already, you saw Disney as the ideal company on which to base teachings of entrepreneurial principles.
0: It's interesting because Disney, the man, and Disney, the company, I think, hold so many lessons that we can really, any of us in any industry or any field can learn from. And the main reason that I got the most interest in Disney was I'm a creativity expert and I'm an entrepreneurship and business expert. And I found no company historically has blended creativity and business, both things at an excellent level as well as Disney has.
1: And what a time to write this book in the wake of Marvel, Lucasfilm, and
0: Pixar acquisitions. The company's having might be called a third golden age. Walt Disney, I would call a golden age, of course. And Michael Eisner was a golden age. I think Iger has followed up with his own golden age. And what Iger has done in acquiring all these fantastic properties and putting them under the Disney umbrella and then bringing all the synergy of all the brands together has actually elevated all those individual brands into something bigger than they would have been on their own.
1: And you talk about leadership styles throughout the book and show us how Walt evolved himself and transformed over time, but then also how other leaders took over and brought the business to new heights. We won't get that far in today's show because there's so much in this book. It's deceptively deep and rich with content, but I thought we'd look at Walt and his story and the entrepreneurial lessons we can derive from his story. But let's share before I, I mentioned this in the intro the leadership instrument mike the instruments you develop
0: yeah it stemmed out of a question that i always get is what is an entrepreneur who is an entrepreneur and it's an old debated question is there a certain type of entrepreneurial profile that you see out there and and my experience as a professor and as a consultant and a speaker is that there's all different types of entrepreneurs so why i decided was well if there's all these different types, maybe there's a way of classifying them. And and what I realized was that really entrepreneurship, first and foremost, is about opportunity. Entrepreneurs are doing something new, they're pursuing opportunities. And as I thought about that, I thought, well, there's probably two ways people approach opportunities. They think about opportunities a certain way, and they then operate and act on those opportunities differently. And so, what I did is I had two continuums i had I had the way they think, so I said some entrepreneurs are going to think abstractly in the big ideas and then some people are going to be more into the concrete details and more into the nitty-gritty of the idea and then they're going to act on on opportunity differently some people are going to want to explore and and look at a lot of possibilities and really be open to new visions and then other entrepreneurs are more well technically we call uh, exploit opportunity. They capitalize on opportunity. They, they like to scale an idea into something bigger. They're not so much on coming up with a new idea as they are taking a really great idea and making it even bigger. And then by doing that, that presented four quadrants on this two-way continuum. So the first quadrant, the person who thinks in big ideas and the person who explores, I labeled an artist. They're, they're into craftsmanship. They're into Uh, really the quality of the idea. They're really into the uh, making it something special that resonates with people at a deep level. And then you've got those people who are more into the nitty gritty, the technology, the the detailed concrete part, and they still like to explore. But I said those people are more like scientists. These are your engineers, your technicians, your scientists. Uh, These are the people who really like to test the reality of the idea and make sure that it's that it's sound, but they still love exploring. They like, they like inventing new, new, new ideas. But then, on the other hand, you've got people who are more into exploiting what's out there, people who like to scale and build things up. But they're, maybe if they're into the details, I call those builders. These are the systems people. These are the people who, like a Wayne Haizenga, who at one time had Blockbuster and Waste Management, all these mega-billion-dollar corporations. He would go into unprofessional organizations and professionalize them. And he he became a billionaire doing that. Uh, And so that's a builder. But then you have the people who are really into the grand ideas, but they like to get those out to a bigger audience. And those are your evangelists. And the point of the book is, if you look at Walt Disney's life, he went through all four stages of this entrepreneurship to become the legendary entrepreneur that he was.
1: Let's jump into that. So let's start in the early days when he was learning his craft. This is Walton, the artist years.
0: As a young boy, actually, his favorite activity was drawing. He he drew all the time, and even when he was uh, off in the ambulance corps in World War One, he was drawing on the size of ambulances. He was drawing caricatures of fellow soldiers. He was drawing cartoons all the time. Those were his heroes. And when he got back from uh, World War One as an ambulance driver. He worked uh, and, and was around newspapers, uh, Cartoonist. He, he liked to attend art classes. He worked for uh, advertising firms, drawing uh, cartoonish advertisements for the firms. He was in the early, early, early stages of animation, drawing simple cartoons for uh, ads for local companies in, in uh, Kansas City. Uh, And he even at that time was starting his own animation company, very raw, very basic. Uh, But, you know, the neat thing is during that time, Walt was drawing. He was drawing cartoons. He was working around the clock, uh, learning how it worked at the top level in that day and age. Most importantly, too, for Walt, he was in cartooning when it was just starting. So you can imagine now. If somebody wanted to uh, do an animated movie, it'd be very hard for one person to do that themselves. But back then, at the, at the dawn of animation, he he could do it all. He could he could he could draw. He could he could edit. He could come up with stories and gags. And at a young age, he really learned what went into cartooning. And it, and and he didn't do that his whole life cartooning because he had other people later to do that. But he himself knew what went into it. He could ask others to do good cartooning because he knew what the art of cartooning was. And I think that foundation really always put in his heart an artist sensibility. I mean, he was always thinking of himself as an artist, even as he was running a company.
1: And I'll come back to that because I found that a kind of touching part of the story as well, where later on he has to realize that he has to let go of that part of himself in order to grow the company, which is where... A lot of entrepreneurs and founders fail because they hold on to what their original skill was and they don't delegate and they don't grow the business as a result. We'll come back to that, Mike, because I'd love to talk about, and you do this brilliantly in the book, you do great storytelling yourself. So you've obviously learned from the master that Walt was, but you tell us about the influence that his father, who was very strict and his mother who was very loving, had on him and his
0: other brothers and sisters. He was a storyteller first and foremost. And, and Disney, the company, is built on storytelling. If there's one thing that it's about, everything starts with a story. They don't move forward without a good story. And what's really interesting is that not only was he, as a young man, uh, interested in cartooning, he actually idolized Charlie Chaplin, the uh, silent film star, the comedian. And so, he he could put on little shows as, as, a, as a young boy Uh, in the neighborhood, mimicking almost to a T. Charlie Chaplin. And what I think is neat about that is later on when you see these Disney classics with the great stories, but also the compelling characters, those are pretty much just the animators capturing what Walt Disney was doing in the drawing studios. I mean, he would actually act out the way Dopey should act in Snow White, or he would act out the way the witch should give the apple to Snow White. I mean, these were all things that Walt was a master storyteller, both in as a performer, as a uh, story creator, and then also knowing how to put that down into an actual physical form for the audience to also enjoy.
1: I loved the pure work ethic that he had, and you talked about him as a child, and I, I told my own kids nine and six about this. I told them about Walt Disney. I told them about how he used to get up at three thirty to do a newspaper round, and then when he needed more money he got up at three and started selling more to his existing customers.
0: Exactly. Yeah. His dad put him on uh, the newspaper route and it was, most of the money was used for the family, but then Walt himself wanted a little extra money for candy and for his drawing supplies. So he would actually pick up some other routes his dad didn't even know about to make some extra money. And then he, he also worked on trains selling newspapers as a, as a young boy. He was always hustling to figure out how to make money and, and how to uh, buy what he felt he needed to have a good life.
1: And this all leads to Disney lesson number one. And just for the audience, this book does the brilliant job of this. It talks about Walt at a certain stage of his life and then derives a lesson. And here you introduce Disney lesson number one.
0: Lesson number one is that your unique circumstances create unique opportunities for you. And to look at Walt Disney's story, there's so many things that happen that... Were almost serendipitous. I mean, the fact that he was in cartooning at a, at the dawn of cartooning. Uh, the fact that later on he went to California to live with his uh, uncle and his brother was was uh, out there as well, uh, recuperating from illness from World War One when he was over in World War One, and that puts Walt Disney in Hollywood in the 1920s when that was just taking off. So. Walt really took what he was individualistic to him, and he took advantage of those, but he also was always looking for the places where he could apply those. It's almost a mix of the opportunities at the right time, but also him creating the opportunities as well. It was a nice match. Walt Disney had a good instinct for that.
1: Disney lesson number two you've alluded to, which is the idea of being honest with yourself with what skills that you have to offer. And he certainly recognized that in his passion for animation and here you recommend to us, the listener and to the reader, to think about that yourself. What drives you? What's what you're passionate about, and try and build a career around that.
0: Exactly. The thing about Walt is, and and this still holds to this day at the company. People either loved him or they they had a hard time with him. And and even today at Walt Disney Company, you will hear the company say that people either work there thirty days or they work there thirty years uh yeah it's it's uh, they you find out real fast, do you love it or or is it just not for you and for Walt, walt was an acquired taste i mean he he was hard working he had high expectations for others. I think him having that artist sensibility, he wanted the best possible quality product for his customers for for the audience. He expected that of himself and he expected that of the people working there and uh therefore he knew that as much as he enjoyed cartooning. It would be a better product if other people who were better artists did that cartooning. So he would produce the cartooning, but he didn't actually, after the early 1920s, he never put a pencil to paper again drawing any anything that went on the screen. But by gosh, his eye was on every second of the production that did go on the screen. and And so he knew what he needed to make a good production. He was willing to delegate to others to do that. But at the same time, Walt Disney was very involved in in everything that did go on in the company.
1: And let's paint the picture a little bit more. So he was in Kansas at this time. This was the days where he, as you say, he, he learned the tough lessons outside the spotlight and that's Disney lesson. Number three, it reminds me a lot of sports where a sports star will do a lot of work off, off the field and create that grit and determination, make the mistakes in order then to perform well when they're on the field. And you talked about. The early days when he created an animation studio himself, and there was a key partnership here with Ub Iwerks, and and he was a key figure in the growth of Disney and the partnership with Walt.
0: Ub and Walt were were so different as people, and yet they had this wonderful friendship and partnership. And uh, I mean, there there is no modern Walt Disney Company without Ub Iwerks. What's interesting is Ub. I even mentioned in the book that it, you know it's possible Ub may have been. On the spectrum you know of of autism he didn't speak much he spoke in monosyllabic uh answers, you know yes, no grunts <laughs> a lot of times uh but he was a genius when it came to sitting over that animation board, coming up with the way the cartoon characters could look, and then also cranking out frames of cartoons at a speed never matched before i mean there was at one point he was able to do seven hundred frames of cartoon in a day. I mean, mind-boggling. So, Ub was a genius. Ub was not good at interacting with people. And and I think that made for a good partnership because uh, Walt appreciated what Ub did. But Ub also had a place to uh, have so much opportunity to be that artist. He had had an environment where he was a star uh, cartoonist. Walt provided that. Uh, Ub's name was on a lot of the productions. Actually, uh, he had a he had a big a big name there, and it, to show how the partnership was good for both of them, later on, Ub actually went off on his own, and the, his own company didn't last very long. It failed, and Walt brought him back, and and Ub went on to do some of the most amazing technological advances that are still in use at the company today. Well, Ub got uh, away from cartooning later on. And got into camera design and and into filming techniques that were revolutionary and so it was just a really really wonderful partnership that that uh, with very different personalities walt and ub had both of them needed each other to get the opportunities that that became uh, such legendary careers the
1: company they formed together in kansas eventually failed and I think this is a part many people don't understand or or may not have heard of because it was this that gave him real scar tissue on which he built upon. And from here, he had to do odd jobs. For example, you mentioned he had a camera and he had to go and film other people's children in order to make some money enough to buy him a ticket to Hollywood. Let's share that a little bit, because I think this is a key part that is often overlooked in many entrepreneurs story, this failure, but the building on the failure.
0: You know, I think it's interesting when you look at angel investors and venture capitalists, they like to know about the experience of an entrepreneur. And ideally, they don't want the company they're investing in to fail. But if somebody has had a failure, that's not always seen as a knock because they figure that person's learned some things. And as you said, the lesson, learn while you're out of the spotlight so that when you're in it, you can really perform at a high level. Entrepreneurs have a vision of what they want to become and what they want to build and just because the world hasn't found you yet, just because you haven't found your thing, doesn't mean that you're wasting your time. Because it's when you're out of the spotlight that you can really learn the hard lessons, that you can better yourself, you can figure out what you need to work on, you can figure out what you need. And as you're learning those hard lessons at a pretty small level, in a way it's big for you, but you're not running a big operation. Those learning years, as you said, built a lot of scar tissue that made Walt stronger and better when he faced bigger challenges later on. And so he was in Kansas City. He had his own animation company. He actually had animators, friends working with him. But he couldn't meet payroll. The product wasn't quite taken off. And he went bankrupt. And for a while, he was living out of his office that he still had a little bit of rent on. Eventually got kicked out of his office. And he was just hobnobbing around Kansas City trying to find places to stay at night. Sometimes Eating out of trash cans, finding food that others had discarded. I mean, he was broke. His family wasn't there. He had been abandoned—not really abandoned. I mean, he—he he wasn't making payroll. People they couldn't work for him if they if they weren't you know making a living there. He didn't have anything, and so he had to figure out a way to go to get to California. One there, that was Hollywood. Two, he had family out there. He didn't have a dime to his name, so he went around doing odd jobs like taking his camera and filming birthday parties or filming children for families for, for record. Uh, and then eventually he saved enough money, sold the camera and bought a ticket to uh, go out and pursue that dream in Hollywood. And and unbelievable, unbelievable origin story of this man who built a legendary company that to this day is probably bigger than he even imagined it could be.
1: I really love this part because this part is so important and you teach entrepreneurship in college and many, many students, and it's just an unfortunate consequence of a golden period in the economy. So we've recovered from the 2008 downturn. Things have been good recently and out of that, you get a little bit of, it's not even entitlement, it's a lack of knowledge about how hard it can be and the lessons you can can learn from that difficulty. And there's a line I pulled from the book that I love. If you want to be a leading authority in your field, you'd need to pay your dues. If it's a new field, you may be able to reach expert level in a few years like Walt did. But if the industry has a long tradition, you will need to dedicate many, many years to reach the top level of performance. And that's the piece that's often overlooked. We're looking for instant gratification, but you just can't skip that level because it will come back and bite you in the ass years later.
0: I definitely will. Yeah. You'll eventually be shown, uh, tested as to, are you legit or, or, or have you been faking it? And Walt, you know, again, going back to his origin stories, let's keep in mind that he grew up on a, this is why he's such a good example for anyone in the world. He grew up uh, in, in relative lower middle class, maybe even borderline poverty on a small farm in Marceline, Missouri. His family was always struggling to try to figure out how to... They were entrepreneurs, always trying to figure out what to do. Walt was working from a very young age for his father. Uh, Just a very, very tough childhood, a very tough... Had no advantages growing up. And yet, you know, here's the thing about Walt. He was always optimistic. He was always visionary. When the environment around him told him that he was uh, delusional, he just kept plugging along. You know, he kept paying his dues, plugging along learning taking the next step always taking the next step always asking what's next and by doing that eventually doors opened eventually he you know he put himself in situations where he was ready to really show his stuff and i think you know you're irish correct yeah 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 the, the, one of I, I watch uh another disney property right now uh, broadcast rights of ufc ultimate fighting championship
1: i didn't know that was disney wow
0: yeah, Disney brought now Disney broadcasts the rights because Disney owns ESPN and ESPN now broadcast UFC, and it shows you where Disney just how how they've really gotten into just about everything in entertainment. But Conor McGregor, you know the great Irish fighter, I listened to him and he he's a lot like a young Disney in the sense of when people thought he was delusional, he had a, he had an image in his head that he'd be a champion, and he could see it in his head, and he did the things, paid the dues to be, become a champion. And, and I, so, I, like you said, in sports, in art, in business, it's the same process. You have to pay your dues. You have to take your knocks. But every time you, you take a knock, you learn something. And, and if you hang in there, you'll be better the next time uh, an opportunity comes along. And, and Walt made a lot of mistakes. That Had it not been for those mistakes, things like Mickey Mouse and things like the, the bigger company would not have happened. I was just thinking when you were saying that Conor McGregor, the cartoon <laughs> <He> is <laughs> a, little bit, a little bit different
1: from Mickey Mouse, more South Park than Mickey Mouse, yeah, I think.
0: Yeah, but he's he's <laughs> definitely a bigger than life character, isn't he?
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so next you move on to, so, so Walt's sold his camera. He's made some money. He's got a ticket to Hollywood. And this is the part when you look at Walt moving from being the artist to becoming the scientist or the tinkerer. And here you say, success is often about the right person doing the right thing in the right place at the right time. And this right place was Hollywood. And circumstance brought him there as well. He knew there was a, a concentration of people there that could create movies and could create entertainment, but also there was family reasons that brought him there.
0: Yeah, exactly. And this is where, you know, as I said, you know, the right person, right time, doing the right thing. Uh, it's. Huge success. I mean, big time Walt Disney success. It's kind of rare, and I don't know that. I don't know that you know you're going to become huge, right? But I think everyone has the opportunity to become successful doing the right practices. You've got. There's everyone has a potential to to have a a certain degree of success, the way they define success. To be a Walt Disney, let's think of these circumstances he had that were very unique. He had paid his dues. He was at the dawn of cartooning. Because he went broke in Kansas City. He can't stay in Kansas City. So he goes out to California to live with his uncle. His brother, now think about this. This is phenomenal. This blows my mind. His brother had eight years banking experience. And if Roy Disney, his brother, had not had that illness, he would Roy would have been in Kansas City, okay? And Probably would have been working inside a bank. Doubtful that he w- would have been working in an animation studio, would, would have been working in a bank in Kansas City. But because he had tuberculosis, he goes out to California in order to uh, recuperate in drier air and better weather out in California. So when Walt goes out there to live with his uncle and, and Walt's kicking around the, the, the studios trying to find a job and he can't get a job, but he's learning what, what a movie studio is. He asked his brother, Roy, to join him because he finally gets a contract with, with a small distributor to make some cartoons. He asked his brother, Roy, who has eight years banking experience, to come help him build the company and bring the business side that he did not have when he was in Kansas City. And Roy does. And now now Walt has not only a, a big brother who loves him and will do anything for him working inside the company, that brother also has eight years banking experience and actually himself a business genius. To go along with Walt's creative genius, those circumstances in early Hollywood, when it was just taking off and cartoons were very raw, was a prime opportunity for Walt Disney to take what he knew about animation already and elevate it into a new art form.
1: Yeah, and you mentioned there wandering the studios. I found the grit and determination here and the the single-mindedness. You mentioned Conor McGregor there. That's common to so many successful people. And by successful, I mean happy in themselves, happy in the vision that has been achieved because they were so passionate about achieving that vision. And here he wandered the studios like wandering, looking for food in the bins that he did back in Kansas. But he did this in the studio, wandering, looking for work until one day he comes across a key person, which was Margaret Winkler.
0: Yeah, Margaret Winkler was a was a distributor of cartoons and she was in New York. He actually had a relationship with her earlier, making some cartoons for her in Kansas City. And it just wasn't enough to pay the bills and the company went under in Kansas City. But he sent letters out all over the country asking if he could make cartoons for people. And he, he got nothing. And then he, out of the blue, Margaret Winkler said, yeah, I could use some cartoons. And so Walt and Roy came up with this idea of... Putting, making animated, an animated world with a real-life little girl in it, Alice's uh, comedies, Alice in Wonderland, basic stories, that was, again, Walt taking technology and, and taking animation and coming up with something different than anything else that was on the market. And they were fairly successful. They had a nice little run making these. It, it was something that eventually ran its course, but it did help establish Walt and Roy in Hollywood with a real production company.
1: Yeah, and just to give a bit of context here, at the time, the cartoon was only a warm up for a movie. So th- there was no such thing as cartoons on the TV. There was no such thing as a feature length cartoon. This was only warm up for main feature films. And this is what he was particularly doing.
0: It was basically uh, eight minutes uh, at the most. And it was a warm up and, and people enjoyed them. But, you know, people uh, didn't necessarily go to the theater to see the cartoon. It, as you say, it was just a warm up. But it did get his name and his uh, skills out to large audiences, right? So, I mean, he wasn't making a lot of money on those cartoons. He was getting visibility. The name of Walt Disney was starting to get a little bit of recognition. He was starting to build up a, a little bit of, of a brand. However, it was not for the feature production. It was for the small little cartoons that were playing early on. He, he could not get rich making those little cartoons.
1: He started getting a bit of success, as you say, started getting this game together. Oh, Bioworks was back in the game. Roy was in the game and things were picking up. And you say, like many entrepreneurs, he was doing it for something other than the money. And because of this, the money came, but he always plowed it back into the business. But there was a key next part of the story of the wall story, which was when Margaret Winkler met Charles Mintz and he came into the fray and changed the game entirely.
0: This is an era where, again, Walt learned some tough lessons. So so Winkler was uh, – he had a great relationship with Winkler. She was very positive of Walt. She, she, and she still pushed Walt. She would talk about the quality. But they had a very good relationship. And then she married Charles Mintz. He was different than Margaret Winkler. He was a very stern, opportunistic, almost bad opportunistic business person in the sense that – the relationship didn't matter as much as whatever they could do to make money and again Walt's approach was always money is to make better productions but he he did engineer some contracts with universal to make a new series of cartoons with Walt and that, that was Oswald the Lucky Rabbit which ended up being a really popular series i mean Oswald the Lucky Rabbit in its day we we all know about mickey mouse but Oswald was Walt's first big success there were chocolate bars and and there were stuffed animals and there was a big brand building up around that it had a major major studio backing it but mints was really tough on walt really really tough and this is where walt learns a really tough lesson mints engineered that deal with universal universal owned oswald walt disney did not so when the contract was ending and they were getting ready to re-up for some more cartoons Mintz starts thinking about it and he says you know this walt disney character From what I hear, he doesn't draw. From what I hear, he doesn't do any of the art. I'm dealing with Universal. We don't really need this guy. So behind Walt's back, he engineers a deal to take the animators away from Walt Disney and sort of do do the cartoons on his own with Walt's handpicked people and, and the people that he had trained. Before that deal came down, this was all being engineered. Walt was going out to New York City to... Renegotiate the new contract, and he thought he was going to get a raise, and he thought he deserved more money on on the royalties. And actually, Manson Universal offer him less; they offer him less money uh, than he was making before. And it was a take it or leave it. And this is a remember. I mean, this this is everything Walt has, and he has to go back to California, thinking about, well, do I take the deal so I can still be in this take the safe road and still be in this industry, or do I say forget them? I'm going to do something different. And he took a principled stand and, and said, we'll finish out this contract and then we'll do something new. And so this something new is something that, again, talking about the great relationship with Ub Iwerks, Ub's the only one who didn't go off with those other animators to mince. Ub stayed with him and Ub and Roy and, and Walt and, and their wives banded together to to try to figure out the next the next creation and the and the first early movies of that creation, then they came up with Mickey Mouse. So it's unbelievable, right? Had it not been for the awful betrayal of Mintz and his animators, Mickey Mouse wouldn't have happened. And and uh it's uh it just shows that that grip, but also how sometimes things that look like they're the worst thing that could happen to us actually end up opening a new door that's in the long run, ends up being even better for us if we're persistent.
1: That lessons, Disney lesson number five, those who endure setbacks early in life often enjoy greater success later. That inspired me. I write a weekly blog on medium and on LinkedIn, and this inspired me to write a piece that's linked to the show. And there's a line in the book that I absolutely loved. And it goes like this setbacks often energize people in one of two ways as fuel or poison for some people the disappointment poisons their spirit. And they sabotage their future by punishing themselves with self-destructive behavior. Others, however, allowed the disappointment to serve as fuel, driving them to accomplish great feats. They won't allow themselves be defeated by the circumstances. I absolutely love that, man. You absolutely nailed the spirit of letting go of the past, of realizing when certain doors don't open for you, they're not meant for you, and sometimes they appear like curses, but they're blessings in the future. I loved to hear what you talked about, and this is something that the detail that you go into the book and do it brilliantly. So Oswald was a rabbit. And if you can picture the shape of a rabbit, it was difficult to draw. So one of the keys to Mickey Mouse was, as you say, the shape of him and the circles. And therefore, with only one animator, which was Ub, he could knock out a frame every 35 seconds in a day.
0: Yeah, Mickey Mouse is a just such a wonderfully created character. The way he's drawn, his personality, his is acting you know the, the whole the whole demeanor of mickey mouse is so wonderful and as you said there you know sometimes i i think some people think that they grow up in in conditions that didn't provide them opportunities that others had growing up you know they think oh i had a tough childhood or somebody took advantage of me or other things like that but i think sometimes if those things happen early in your life, and you learn from them, You've got almost a head start on others who are going to learn those lessons once we're out in the world. Anyway, we all learn tough lessons once we're out in the world. These people got in the world a little bit younger, and and I think it brings a savviness. I mean, you could even call it street smarts. You know, you could call it street smarts. I've I've come across entrepreneurs who are just brilliant. I mean, pure genius at, at how they say things and what they do. Funny thing is, they don't see themselves that way because they see themselves as coming from an, an upbringing of poverty or not bringing the, uh, not being in the country club, but doggone it. If it had been for getting those street smarts, they, when they got out in the world, they wouldn't have the savviness to know how to read people or the savviness to know how to make deals happen or get things done. And that's what I, that's what I mean. I, I appreciate you pointed out that statement about fuel or poison about tough times being fuel or poison. Cause that's something I really thought about a lot and all, all the lessons in the book, I gave it a lot of thought about how to phrase these into, into just really powerful takeaways. And what I have seen about people is we all have bad things that happen to us. We all carry our, our skeletons in our closet. We all carry our demons. We all carry our tough experiences. But are we going to use that to show the world that, that we can make it? Are we going to use that to build a strength that helps us to do things that others that didn't go through those, through those experiences can't do? Or are we going to be bitter about it and, and let it eat us up and and feel bad about ourselves and go into a self-destructive spiral? And, and really the decision is up to you. You know, are you going to channel it into something and make something positive of it? Which I really truly believe when you look at the the greats, they all came from something hard. Or are you going to give in and and break down? And that's a daily choice. That's a daily choice that we all have to make. And Walt, every day, was making the choice to keep moving forward.
1: Yeah, and speaking of moving forward, you talk about iteration, and you mentioned there he was the instigator of so many new ways of working, new technology. He's won many, many Oscars for technology, inspirations, innovations, etc. But you talked about this, and, and at the time, animation was silent, and Walt was the person who introduced sound with Mickey Mouse.
0: Exactly. So he had Mickey Mouse, he thought it was a pretty good little cartoon. But he thought, well, it's still not really standing out that much from Oswald. And he was always wanting to prove to others that they had the best productions. Later on, a lot of animators would talk about how Walt would get a little twinkle in his eye and say, wait till they see this. And, and for Walt, he and Roy had seen The Jazz Singer, which was one of the, may have been the first movie with sound in it. And Walt said, we have to do that for our cartoon. So just three cartoons into Mickey Mouse, while they're still fulfilling, by the way, the uh, contract with Mints and Universal at night, they're working on bringing sound into the Mickey Mouse cartoon. And it it was a real challenge. They had to really think it through. They had to figure out how many beats it took to get the music and the sound lineup and how they're going to record that and where they were going to get the equipment. And uh, they were (laughs) truly experimenting at night. Pretty quickly, really, they figured it out and they got excited because they thought, you know, we can do this. And the minute it got out there, a cartoon and Mickey Mouse, not only could you see what he was doing, but you could hear what he was doing. You could hear Mickey Mouse. It it blew people's minds. It was a major cinematic breakthrough uh, that A character now could have a a personality expressed also through what they said the
1: universe does not let people away with treating you like dirt and if you don't let it if you let go of that poison as you say and you use it as fuel instead and the mince saga was proven mince saying that walt is nothing but a middleman not seeing the true talent and here he brings the talent and it's just like screw you mince check this out. We have sound. And then I loved what he did. He rolled it back into the previous cartoons. There's a key part here that you mentioned. Nobody knew what an animation was thinking. So they judged it very, very quickly. And Mickey Mouse in the early first two animations in Steamboat Willie was considered to be arrogant and a little bit rude, et cetera, et cetera. We'd love to, if you'd share this a little bit.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) when they, when they were first Coming up with the idea of Mickey Mouse, say they were thinking of him being more of a kind of a dashing Errol Flynn, kind of a rogue, kind of like the silent film stars, and so he he would kick animals and and he had a real he had a real cockiness to him, and uh, it didn't play real well. They were like ooh because he he actually was trying to even mimicking Charles Lindbergh, the pilot pioneer who was big at the time. So Walt was always trying to bring in whatever was big at the time. And it just wasn't a lovable character. It was kind of a a cocky, arrogant character. And so they, they had to modify it. And then so when you look at Steamboat Willie, number three, when they put the sound in, they kind of make him a little softer. They make him a little friendlier. He's whistling, right? He's, he's, he's whistling on top of the boat. He's being nice to his girlfriend. He's not being quite as tough And and actually... You sort of feel for him in, in, during the, the early cartoons of Walt Disney, where there's some Tufts who are trying to take advantage of him and many. And so he becomes a much more relatable and lovable character. And really that character, if you want to know what Walt Disney was like, just look at Mickey Mouse, because the, the Mickey Mouse after Steamboat Willie is all Walt Disney. I mean, he, he did the voice. He did the acting. Uh, He came up with the stories, and that was pretty much Walt Disney up on the screen.
1: That storytelling never left him, even into the movie years. But I love the way Walt, and this is a real lesson in innovation, and one of the real lessons I'd love if our listeners pulled out of the book, is he never rested on his laurels. And if, if you think of businesses, they establish themselves, they've got a killer product, and they stop. And Walt never did that. So he always looked at ways to iterate, always looked at ways to build new technological advances and innovations into the product. But here he invested ahead of the need to invest and he started building silly symphonies, even though he didn't need to, because he still had to fulfill Mickey Mouse, he had a contract on that, but he started going and building silly symphonies. And this is a piece that's often overlooked in the story.
0: It's huge. Silly symphonies is. One of my favorite eras of of the Walt Disney Company because Mickey Mouse is big. He, he could have lived on Mickey Mouse. They could have kept cranking those out. But he comes up with Silly Symphonies where he's experimenting with new technology, camera techniques, uh, stories, bringing music in. I mean, uh, creating music as well. Uh, and it was all driven out of that, as you said, out of that what's next, because Walt. One, he, he always liked to challenge himself and challenge his people. So he always liked that. But while again, thinking about him being an artist, he always was thinking about how can we express ourselves better. And he realized that new technologies and creating new technologies could elevate the art and do new things with the animation. And uh it was really became a, a lab for all these new techniques that later ended up being used in Becoming the uh, the foundation for the classic films where he actually made a fortune, you know the the movies that were that are still seen today, Picard, the cart uh, the classic animated movies were built off of the experimentation, the middle stages of the silly symphonies. The silly symphonies is one; it's so darn gutsy uh, to have gone that way because they were expensive. They, I don't think they actually made much money for the company, but they built the brand. They built the name of Walt Disney as a genius. And it also elevated every aspect of that company, both technologically as a business and as a as a artistic company to become something truly special. And then you're really starting to enter the first golden age of Disney when that's happening.
1: You really inspired me. I was given a keynote the other day and I was talking about how businesses need to experiment. And I mentioned this, mentioned Silly Symphonies. And I was saying they didn't necessarily build a killer hit, but they built capability. Yes. And even though they didn't nail it, they built this capability that then they were able to hold and use later on in the business. And this is where leadership, keeping employees engaged, keeping them for long periods of time, people like, oh, I keeping them in the business and building capability all come together to create this symphony of business. And you create new innovations from doing this. And the other thing I loved was when he still had to fulfill Oswald, the rabbit for universal and Charles Mintz. He did that during the day with, with a certain group of probably the animators who were enticed to leave, to go to universal, but then with a secret lab, almost like Steve jobs story in apple, he was building the future of the business. But then he didn't lose that skill. That circumstance gave him that skill and he did it again then. So he was building Mickey Mouse and he was building silly symphonies on the side and uh, on the side. And I thought that's a brilliant lesson and a brilliant frame to take out of this and this leads to Disney Lesson Number Eight: Entrepreneurial leaders set the example for everyone else to follow. Her. And you say here, the dedication of how Walt studied versions of Brothers Grimm tales, and even traveled to Europe to understand how sets of classic tales worked. Because he next he wanted to build, and he wanted to build from the eight-minute episodes of cartoons to feature-length
0: stories. I'd love if you shared this. Once he mastered something, he, he always asked, "What's next?" He was wired that way. He just always had to take it to the next level, and I think when you look, there are a lot of similarities, and there's a good reason why Steve Jobs' hero was Walt Disney. I mean, that that was the model that Steve Jobs used for himself in business, and and I think both of them shared kind of a mercurial personality, but it was based in it was based in such a appreciation for the customer that if people saw their productions, that they were going to get their money's worth. And not only their money's worth, but they were going to get more than they even expected. They were going to get things that they didn't even know they were going to get. And so to do that, he, he expected everyone around him to have the same drive, the same dedication to the customer, the product as he had. And if you didn't have that, it, he could be tough to be around. But, but if you were performing, if you were living by that, that ethic, that philosophy of excellence, uh, you you could do really well there. And so Walt, it, it's just so wonderful. He was wired in a way that he didn't want to manage things. He didn't want to just keep doing the same old thing. Once something was a hit, he, he would ask, so what's the next thing we could do? And the next thing had to be bigger and better. It had to be something, not just a, a new form of something already done, but, it, but a whole new creation. Something. He had to bring something in that would challenge himself and challenge his team. And building, I love what you said there about building capability, because that, that's essentially what Walt Disney put into the DNA of the Walt Disney Company, was this tremendous capability. Today, today that capability that so many people have there is based on the, the original capability that Walt started putting in place in the 1930s and 40s.
1: This all led to Sleeping Beauty and made of millions. He realized he had to build up the studio. So he hired 300 people all at once. And this was really interesting because this is where we saw this idea of having a funnel of talent, kind of like you would have in a sports team. You have the academy pumping through players and he aligned here with art schools, etc. This piece is essential.
0: I think it is essential. So he realizes, okay, we, if we're going to scale this up and we're going from eight minute cartoons to an hour or longer. Feature animations. We're not, we're not only the opening act now. We are actually the act. We are the main. We're getting the main billing, and that was big to Walt because now you you can make a lot more money uh, by being the main feature than you could as the opening act. And the other thing is, as we knew about Walt Disney, more money meant he could plow it back into the company and keep doing bigger things. And so to do those bigger things, he had to have more artists. They had to be well trained. So he partnered. With a local art institute, and he would actually himself sometimes drive the artist over at night to get the lessons. And then it got to be really inefficient doing that. So he brought the arts a lot of the art teachers into the studio, and he built basically an apprentice program, nothing like that before, in animation to and then the other more senior artists would, like a mentor program or an apprenticeship program, would mentor the new artist. And they would get taught the the Disney way of animation. And then they would also had to step up the game as an organization. They had to build more professionalism into the company to handle divisions and to handle distribution and the legal side. And this leads to another betrayal that Walt had in the 1940s, shortly after World War II, when they were not able to make feature productions because a lot of the animators had gone on to be Soldiers in World War II, out of the studio, people couldn't afford to see movies overseas because Europe, a big market for Disney, was uh, war torn and not able to see movies. And the government had actually appropriated the studios to serve as a basically a base. And he had to make propaganda and training films for the U.S. government. Uh, he got he was not able to to do things that were was making the money like he was before. So it was a tough time. And then coming out of that, he really needed to make some movies. He needed to make some animated films to bring some money in. And this is a time of labor striking in in America, time of union growth. And his animators go on strike. And right when he needs them the most and right when he feels like, you know, I have given everything to the studio. I really need you now. And now you're going on strike. And it it really hurt Walt. What was really felt betrayed by that. And he was not happy to settle with the animators. You know, he still felt like we should all be in this together. I've sacrificed. You sacrificed. Let's move on. They didn't. They didn't want to do that. So Roy Disney actually sends Walt on a goodwill tour of South America to get him out of the studio, so he can handle the the labor negotiations and 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 get everybody back working again. Uh, but after that, I like I like to say there's a a B.S. and an A.S. for Walt Disney before strike and after strike. And I think after strike, Walt realized, well, I'm going to have to professionalize this organization even more. I've got to be more of an executive. And I think a lot of this came out of the the growth of the company. Early on, Walt Disney interacted with everybody. Everybody knew Walt. Walt knew everybody else. But as he brought more and more of these new people in who weren't there during the early days, he maybe didn't interact with them. So people started to think that maybe he had favorites. Sometimes he gave bonuses to people that he thought performed well. And there got to be a a bad feeling inside the ranks. And they go on strike, and Walt Disney changes kind of his approach to the business. And that becomes a major part of the building stage. Not only is he building bigger productions, he's also building a bigger organization that will stand up to be operating more like a say a fortune 500 company rather than a mom and pop family studio.
1: So you mentioned there his, you know, he realized I have to professionalize this. He builds the big studio, the army commandeers, the studio uses it as a base and his people turn on him. So he real sense of betrayal here, but again, because of that determination and because of that single mindedness, things happen, serendipity happens. You, you almost force it to happen. And one of the things it led to was full length movies proper feature movies not animation anymore and this led to the development of burbank studios
0: exactly what's so so great about this is when walt went to hollywood in, in the early 1920s he he wanted to work in traditional film i mean he wanted to be a director of, of traditional films he wanted to, to to be a another john ford or or, or howard hawks But he didn't get those opportunities, so he had to rely on what he did have, and that was cartoons. So he went down that path of cartooning. So later on, he eventually finds an angle to start making real action live films, and that is a rumor. After World War II, uh, Britain, United or the United Kingdom, was uh, could you could they would only show in England. British made films. They would only show British made films over there uh, for a period of time because they were trying to build back the economy. So what Walt figured out was, well, if we can't show our films over there, maybe we could make our films there and then we can show them there and make money in Europe as well as bring them back to the U.S. and make them. So he makes Treasure Island, a a live action film. It was a big hit, but he found that he kind of found that that opening to finally move into live action which later became just a huge part of the company and again out of a set of circumstances and one of the lessons i mentioned in there is this is what walt disney always did and this is what the great entrepreneurs always do they always find the upside in a situation that is your job Any anybody's job is to find that upside you could be going through something tough you could be betrayed uh as we said before you you know, are you going to use it as fuel or poison? You do that by finding the upside and going, well, doggone it. If if we can't take our films in there, then let's just make the films there. Roy said, well, that's Roy kept being uh, saying we're in the cartoon industry. We, we make animated films. But He said, well, that's a sound business reason. Let's do it. That becomes a hit. And then soon after that, he makes 20,000 leagues under the sea, which wins a bunch of Oscars. Makes a, a lot of money. He later goes on to make Mary Poppins. So, again, that little door opens that it later on ends up being a major part of the Walt Disney brand. I
1: love that underlying lesson the whole time about fuel or poison. And there's a great story about a snake bite doesn't kill you, it's not removing the poison that actually kills you. Right. You have a choice. You have a choice how you react. And I, I think that's a real underlying message here. And I, I think it's great. People like you have written a book like this educating the future of humanity, because we need these lessons in humanity. We need them beyond frameworks, beyond education. We need to teach people how to think and give them lessons that have got lost somewhere along the way. I think a lovely way to finish is if you would take us through how you notice these early years, how Walt evolved as this studio did, because many entrepreneurs and founders step down when the business they start transitions. But Walt George for the, this reason of being open to transformation and evolution.
0: And, and you know, it's not that Walt explicitly knew about artist, scientist, builder, and evangelist. It was a natural process for him to, as a company grew, he had to move into these different stages. But what he did was, when he needed that builder or he needed that evangelist, he would find the best and he learned what they did. And he appreciated them. He knew that he, like, for example, when, when he built Disneyland, he hired the admirals and generals of the U.S. Army and Navy who built huge fleets for World War II. He said, well, if they could build those, they can surely build my 162-acre piece of land I'm going to put this theme park. And he hires them who are the, the world's best builders to work inside the company building the theme park. So he recognized what he needed. He would go out and find the best, hire them, appreciate them, learn, learn what they did, interact with them, but also realize, as Walt said, one person can't build a company, it takes people. And he continuously did that. When he was an artist, he did some of the art, but he hired the best artist at that time, moved into into the scientist stage, and he hired engineers, and, and Up iWorks was in some new roles. A builder, he got the generals and admirals and great business people. And then later, interestingly enough, Walt became the evangelist. That was the role that Walt really played the most later in his life as Uncle Walt when he was on TV and walking around Disneyland where the public had a face and a person to interact with that represented the Walt Disney Company. It was funny. Walt Disney himself said, I'm not Walt Disney anymore. Walt Disney is a company. Walt Disney is a brand. But he knew that he was the ultimate salesman for that brand.
1: Beautiful. And- Mike, where can people find out more about you, your work, the book, and also the leadership instrument that you developed?
0: Sure. So, our book is on Amazon.com. But also, if you like it in audio version, it, it actually came out as an audiobook recently, which you can find on Amazon as well as on Audible.com. Uh, they did a really nice job in turning that into an audiobook. And voiced by Connor McGregor. I wish that would be great. (laughs) (laughs) I would listen to that for sure. Uh, Nice. But uh, the the other thing is, we have a website www.elprofile.com. So it's E L P R O F I L E. And on that, you'll find the profile as well as you'll see columns that we write, much like yourself, write blogs and columns and. And other interviews that we've done are posted on there. This one will eventually be posted on there. It's our social media site. My co-author, Rob Matthews, and I have our own uh, consulting company, and, and we give quite a bit of talks. And it's interesting. I was giving some talks this week, and, and the themes that I talked about were the same ones you were talking about, Aiden. This uh, theme resonates out there worldwide.
1: Absolutely, man. It's a key lesson and very important in the world today. Author of Entrepreneurship the Disney Way, Mike Goldsby, been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for joining us.
0: Same here. Thanks so much.